We're going to spend some time now considering that wonderful hope uh, that we've just been singing about, that we've heard enacted before us. Uh, It's going to be a, uh, a great opportunity to consider the good news. So let's pray together and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity this morning. Thank you that we can turn our hearts to the empty tomb. We pray this morning that the living Jesus might be at work here and that by his Holy Spirit, he might be showing life to those who need it refreshing life in those that know it, and that, Father, your Son might be honoured in all we do this morning, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're talking uh, this morning about life, and I want to start by showing you uh, some old things. This is kind of a bit of a random start, I guess. Let me show you some old things. Uh, This is my favourite old thing that I found when I was looking for old things. Uh, This is a, a turtle. Her name is Harriet because, of course, you call a turtle Harriet. Actually, the story behind the name is that uh, she was called Harry for about 150 years until they discovered that she was, in fact, a girl turtle, and they changed it to Harriet. So there you go. Now, Harriet uh, was 176 years old, uh, but today she's dead. Isn't that sad? Happened a little while ago. Uh, What about the Colosseum? Colosseum in Rome. Does anyone know how old the Colosseum is? It's on the screen. Well, that's helpful. <laughs> Obviously, I was waiting for that to come up. And uh, Sorry, Luke? Amazing. Give that man yeah, Absolutely. Fantastic. Uh, now, well done. It's very rare to find someone who'll know the age of the Colosseum. So well done, Luke. Brilliant. Um, what's happening to the Colosseum these days? Well, it's decaying. It spent 2,000 years unbecoming the Colosseum that it was when it was opened 1,947 years ago. It's, it's decaying. Uh, this lovely lady here, I won't ask you to name her because it's obviously up there. Uh, her name is Jean, and if someone knows French, they can tell me. Is it, do I just go with Calmet? Calment? No T, Calmen. Lovely, fantastic. We're working brilliantly so far this morning, got the team going. So uh, she was... Uh, the oldest lady in the world. In fact, she's still the oldest lady in the Guinness Book of Records at 122 years old. That is pretty epic, isn't it? Um, Unfortunately today, she's dead. Do you know that the mantle of the oldest person in the world keeps on changing? Did you know this? Not the world record for who's the oldest, but the oldest person alive. Do you know that keeps on changing? Do you know why it keeps on changing? They keep on dying. That's pretty amazing, isn't it, really? Nothing lasts forever. Not beautiful buildings, not tortoises, and not beautiful people. Nothing lasts forever. Except there's one man who came and lived a perfect life. There's one man who died on a cross to pay the price for our sins. There's one man. The number two. Two is the number for the law of thermodynamics. Have you heard of this? The second law of thermodynamics. second law of thermodynamics says that dead things stay dead and everything decays. Dead things stay dead and everything decays. It was on the third day, the third day that everything changed. That that one man 
overcame that second law. On the third day, everything changed. And God graciously gave us four witnesses who declare that the tomb is empty and that Jesus is raised. Four witnesses, four people who God gave us to write an account of Jesus' life. You know, they spend almost half of their accounts on the last week of his life. And they finish, all of them, with the tomb that held his body empty. What do those four declare? They declare this beautiful truth that we see in John. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. They declare that the tomb is empty and more than that, Jesus appears to Mary, and this is the account in John. It says, Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I've seen the Lord. And she told him that he had said these things to her. Four writers declare that the tomb is empty. Four writers declare that the occupant of that tomb is living today. What does that mean? A real resurrection had happened. It wasn't just a vision or an apparition. This truly was Jesus. And when we say real, it's important that you understand that he had a body. He had flesh and he had bones. He had real flesh and bones. Enough to be touched, enough to eat, and yet he was changed. Something had changed. He could eat flesh, eat flesh, eat fish is where I was going. You'll have something else happening in your heads if I say he's eating fish. He could eat fish. He ate it in the presence of his disciples. He could be held. He could show them the holes in his hands and in his side. Jesus was raised real, and he was raised in body. It was just like Jesus had said. You know, the, the, the writers, particularly in Mark's account of Jesus' life, Mark, who had been spending time with Jesus, he, he records three separate occasions when Jesus talks about his death. Before he died, Jesus' death was not an accident. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't something that wasn't supposed to happen to this holy teacher. It was exactly as he had planned. Have a listen to what it says in Mark 8:31. It says this. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man, it's the way Jesus refers to himself. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus told the people who were following him on three separate occasions that he would die and that he would be raised. I want you to know today that every time Jesus spoke about his death, always when he spoke about his death, there was always the mention of his resurrection. Always death and resurrection. Always death and resurrection. Now, the extraordinary thing about that is you, you might be someone like Martin Luther King, right, who was a political uh, up, 
uprise, a, a, a person who was shaking up the social order. And, and he actually told people before he was killed, he said, I reckon that this is possible. He said, I've seen that far country. I might not be there to take you to it, but I've seen it. Because he could tell the impact of his life was causing powerful people to be upset. And so at some level, he was able to predict that he might die. But you know when our ability to predict what will happen stops? It stops when we die, doesn't it? Sounds silly to say it. But my ability to say what I will do stops at my death. And Jesus repeatedly told his disciples what he would do after he died. Can you see how extraordinary that is? I will be killed, and then three days later, I will rise. You're either loopy or something extraordinary is going on, isn't it? And every time Jesus mentions his death, he mentions the resurrection. Death and resurrection are the story of Jesus. Not death alone. Death and resurrection. So can we be sure that it happened? Can we be sure that it actually happened? I want you to consider it for yourself this morning. I want you to consider whether it's true that that tomb was empty. And I want to uh, get my friendly uh, razor out, Occam's razor. Have you heard of Occam's razor before? Fantastic little saying. It says, all things being equal, choose the simplest explanation. The simplest explanation that accounts for all the facts is most likely to be true. The simplest explanation that accounts for all the facts is most likely to be true. So let's take Occam's razor. Occam was the guy, and his razor is called a razor because it cuts through the rubbish. Don't go for an overly complex explanation. Go for the simplest explanation. It's more than likely to be true. So let's consider. Let's consider these statements and think for ourselves about whether the tomb might be empty. I'm going to ask Kara to come up. Can you come up, Kara? I'm going to give you four reasons that I think you can consider that the tomb would be empty. I want you to think about his Mary. I want you to consider how unflinchingly honest the account of the resurrection is in the Bible. Okay? How unflinchingly honest it is. And we're going to hear these words from John 20, verses 7 to 10. Thanks, Kara. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Okay, so what we have is we have an account of the empty tomb. We have Jesus going into the tomb. Incidentally, why did the women go to the tomb in the first place? Does anyone know why they went? Tell me. Someone said to anoint the body. Okay, I just want you to face the reality with me. How much resurrecting were they expecting? Are we clear? The women went, here's Mary, going to the tomb, she went to anoint a dead body. Are they expecting resurrection? No. And then it says Peter went in and he saw the cloths there and he wasn't sure about it. In fact, it says here, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. That's what it says in the Bible about the guy standing in the tomb. Can you, can you get how embarrassing that is? 
I'd edit that out, wouldn't you? And then I realized that Jesus, you know, I put that in, wouldn't I? It says here he didn't understand. It says that the women went to anoint a dead body. These are the disciples. They had no idea, did they? It's unflinchingly honest. I'm going to say it's unambiguously placed. Let let me me, uh, explain to you why. If you can read the second bit for us, Carrie, that would be great, from Acts chapter 10. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. And all the prophets testify about him that everything, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Fantastic. Where was Jesus crucified? Does anyone know what city? Call it out. Jerusalem. This is Jerusalem here. He was crucified in Jerusalem. Does anyone know where the tomb is? Jerusalem. See if you can catch the pattern. He was crucified in Jerusalem. His tomb is in Jerusalem. Guess where the disciples started to proclaim that Jesus had risen from the dead? Can you guess? I just want you to think with me how audacious that is. People saw on the cross Jesus' body. In the same neighborhood, they had a tomb where he was put. And then a bunch of people who were terrified and afraid on that, on that Saturday ended up proclaiming in Jerusalem that Jesus was raised from the dead, never to die again as the immortal, eternal king of the universe. Where did they go to do that? You can tell me. Now that's orkies, isn't it? That's a little bit awkward. Because don't I just walk down to the tomb that's just over there and pull the stinking body out? In Jerusalem, the church started. In Jerusalem, where they crucified him, where they put him in the tomb, that's where the church started. Not in Rome or Turkey or India or China or Japan, not far away where no one knew the gory details. In the same city is where the church began. That's extraordinary, isn't it? I want to say to you thirdly that Christianity is unashamedly irreligious at this level. Uh, Have a listen to our next reading from Acts chapter 2. This is just after the church has begun. The Holy Spirit has come. About 5,000 people have become Christians on one day. Where? You can tell me. Nice. In Jerusalem. 5,000 people have become Christians. And here's what they do in Jerusalem. Have have a listen to this. Thanks, Kara. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Awesome. When I googled Jesus' tomb, googled Jesus' tomb, This is what comes up. Screenshot. Jesus' tomb. Now, can you see that it's all only one place? That's a trick question. 
Can you see that it's not one place? That's a little bit concerning, isn't it? I mean, after all, isn't this the holiest place in all in Christendom? Jesus' tomb. Do you know what? The first disciples didn't gather around the tomb. Do you hear where they met? They met daily in the temple courts and in their homes, breaking bread and enjoying the favor of all the people. Why would they go to the temple courts if the most important thing in the whole world was Jesus' tomb? I'll tell you why they wouldn't. Why would they keep meeting in their homes? I'll tell you why they wouldn't go to the tomb. Here's the reason. Because the tomb doesn't matter. Why doesn't the tomb matter? Because it didn't hold him, brother. It didn't hold him because it was empty, because there was nothing there. It does not become an amazing place of veneration because it's empty. The reason you meet in the temple courts and in your homes is because Jesus is risen and he is in your hearts. So Christianity doesn't hold that the tomb is a holy, awesome place because we have a risen, resurrected saviour. Christianity, when it comes to the tomb, is unashamedly irreligious. Fourthly, Christianity is unquestionably historical. Have a listen to this from 1 Corinthians 15. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Thanks, Carrie. This part that was just read from 1 Corinthians 15 is arguably the oldest recorded piece of Christian tradition. I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for sins and that he was raised on the third day. That Christians knew this, said this, captured this, this had been treasured by them from day one. That is of first importance, Christ had died and been raised. That's the essence of Christianity. If you take that out, it's got nothing. But I want you to see what it says. He appeared to the 12 and then to how many? Did you hear it? To more than 500 of the believers at one time. And then it says here, many of whom, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. What it's essentially saying is, if you don't believe us, go and ask them. There are 500 people who have seen Jesus alive. It's verifiable. Can you see this? Go and ask them. Now, that's a bit, a bit awkward for us, isn't it? We can't go and ask them. Yeah? But at the time this was written, he was saying, you could chat with them. They exist. They're real. This happened in human history. Put it to the go and ask test. Now, for us, we're 2,000 years afterwards, and so it's a bit difficult to go and ask those 500, all of whom have fallen asleep now. So so how do we do it? I, I showed you on Good Friday that we can prove that Jesus lived not by asking Christians, although I think there are great reasons to believe that Christians got it right. But we can ask people who had no interest in Christianity whatsoever, like uh, this guy, Tacitus, who's writing in 15, uh, sorry, 115 AD. He says, Christus, and I, I read this to you the other day, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. 
Tiberius was a Roman emperor. Pontius Pilate was the procurator of Jerusalem. And guess what? Jesus really suffered the extreme penalty. He was killed in Jerusalem. That's a Roman writing to us. I'll give you another Roman. This is fascinating. I absolutely love this one. It's a guy called Pliny the Younger. I assume there was a Pliny the Older. Oh, Someone is nodding their heads. Who knows? Fantastic. There was a Pliny the Older. This is Pliny the Younger. Fantastic. Always got to stand in the front of the queue, I'm sure. Um, so here's the Younger. Now, this guy is writing a letter to Trajan, who's the emperor at this time, and he's writing to say, hey, I've got a bit of a pesky problem in Turkey where I am. I've got a bit of a, a, bit of a pesky problem, okay? I've got these Christians, right? They're a bit, I don't know what to do with them because they don't bow down and worship the gods. And so he says this, <laughs> they stated that the sum of their guilt or error accounted to this, that they used to gather on a stated day before dawn and sing to Christ as if he were a god. In Turkey, in 112 AD, there are enough Christians that the head of that area of Turkey was writing to the Roman emperor to say, what do I do with these guys? They're not worshipping the regular gods. They're worshipping Jesus as a god. Why would you worship a crucified man? He's just another dead bloke. We said the other day, hundreds and thousands of people were crucified throughout the Roman Empire. Yet this group in Turkey, hundreds of kilometers away from Jerusalem, are proclaiming Jesus as a God. The only way you can do that is if you believe fervently, if it has been taught that he is alive. Christianity is unashamedly, unquestionably historic. It aims to say there really was a Jesus and he was really raised to life. I want to suggest to you today that it seems likely he was raised. And I want you to know that the tomb is not occupied. It's vacant. It's vacant. It is not filled today. There is no place that you can go on earth to find the bones of Jesus. Isn't that extraordinary? It's a famous bloke. He died. He really did die. He really did live. We can see that. Historians tell us that. But no one has his bones. And where did he die? Oh, just in some backwater. Some place that no one would have cared. So they just got lost. Where did he die? You can tell me. Where did the church start? If you have his bones, wouldn't you venerate them? Wouldn't you put them in a special box, put them on a pillar, build a church around it if you had his bones? Wouldn't you do that? And who didn't have his bones? The people who proclaimed that he was raised from the dead. I want you to consider with me that it seems at least likely that the simplest explanation for these facts is that Jesus is raised from the dead. Being raised makes all the difference. So if, if the dead man truly is alive today, here's, here's some things that are impacted by that. Number one, death is not the end of the line. I love this. I found out about this the other day, uh, this railway line that's built at the back of, uh, uh, of here that never got finished. And so there's this wonderful bridge standing there, not too far from here, a railway line that finishes it's like our life, isn't it? We run up to that dark end where it all stops, and then what? Well, wonderfully, the empty tomb tells us death is not the end of the line. And what that means for me and you is that he is alive today. Now, it took me ages to get this. I grew up in Sunday school, and in my Sunday school, I learned all the Sunday school stories, right? 
And I, I could tell you the Sunday school story, but no, no one ever told me, no one ever connected for me as a kid that when, it, when we had Easter, it meant that Jesus was alive. I probably could have told you that, but I never figured out what that meant. It meant he's alive today. The Jesus who was in the tomb then is alive 2,000 years later today. He is alive. Why, why does that matter? It matters because the Bible says that he will return to judge the world. That this Jesus who was raised to life again, who is lifted up to be the king of all the universe, will one day come back as the living judge to call you and I to account for our lives. One day, the living Jesus will return. But even better than that, because we, we know about the judging, I want to tell you about the sharing. When we find something good, what do we do? We want to share it, yeah? Click that button, share it on. When we find something good, we want to share it. Jesus offers to share this indestructible life that he has with us. Jesus wants to share his indestructible life with us. Isn't that awesome? And that changes things. That changes things. Let me tell you what sort of things that it changes. The other day, I went to a little cafe. I went to a cafe with my mum. And my mum has cancer. And the diagnosis is terminal. And we sat together. And I asked my mum, mum, what, what do you want to talk about? Are there things that I can organise? There's stuff, things that I can do. And we talked about those things. And we talked about relationships, people to take care of, things that she wants us to remember. And we talked about the funeral. And I said, Mum, I want to take your funeral. She said, I'd love you to. And you know what we talked about? Beyond that. We talked about a hope beyond that. Because it makes all the difference in the world. This is life and death stuff. It makes a difference for me. It makes a difference for my mum. That we can look beyond the grave and say there is more to come. There is more to come. And I want to suggest to you this morning that if you haven't thought about beyond that day, it's a great day to start. I want to suggest to you that with the death statistic standing at 100%, that you need to have thought more about life after death than you have now. That we spend more time choosing to finish on the tiles in our homes than we do thinking about life eternal. That we spend more time working out what car to buy next than we do about life eternal. That we spend more time agonizing about the education of our kids than where we will end up for all eternity. Why is that? Why is that? You've got to give it some thought. You've got to give it some thought. Here's what the Bible says, that if we declare with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. That if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Jesus is Lord, it means he's the king of your life. That he was raised from the dead, it means that that life can be yours. And I want to think with you this morning, how does that work? How does it actually, how do I get to live forever? Well, I want you to think it about like grafting. Do you, do you know grafting with plants? So you've got one that's got its roots in the ground that's full of life and energy. And you've got another one that you cut off. 
You know, as soon as I'm cut off from the roots, what's going to happen to that stick if we just leave it? Second law of thermodynamics, it's going to die, right? Its only trajectory is to death. All of us are cut off from life. And what I want to tell you this morning is you need to be grafted into the life that is in Jesus. You need to be joined in to the life that is in Jesus, that his life might flow through you, that you might know the power of that life. Have a listen to these beautiful words in Romans 11, uh, 8. It says this, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. That's the how, right? I will trust you, Lord, with all my heart. He says, I will put my spirit in you and cause you to live beyond the grave. That's the how. And what does that mean? I I love this turn of phrase. It occurred to me this morning as I was walking across to church. Ordinary immortality. It's not Thor and your Marvel heroes. It's not that rubbish. An earthy, actual, real immortality for you and me who never deserved it. It's possible for us. We can live forever. We can have confidence beyond the grave because God has raised his son. Praise God. Ordinary immortality is on offer this morning. So I want to encourage you, give Jesus a crack. Give Jesus a crack. Give Jesus a crack if you're a passionate seeker. One of my favorite parts of the story is it says, Peter and John, when they heard from the women, started running from the tomb, running for the tomb. And it says, John outran Peter. I just love it. I just love that that little detail is there, right? John outran Peter. And so if you're a passionate seeker after Jesus today, I want to tell you, you'll be found by him. Keep chasing. Why did he beat Peter? I don't know. I reckon Peter was desperate and guilty. He too had come to an empty tomb, but he'd come overwhelmed with guilt. He betrayed Jesus. And this morning, if you're desperate, if you're guilty, come to him. You know who else he'll be found by? The faithful brokenhearted. I love Mary's story. Wasn't it beautiful this morning? When Mary came and stood amongst us and told us the story, and what did she say? He knew my name. The faithful brokenhearted can have life. The faithful brokenhearted can have life. And you know who else? Who else can have life? I absolutely love that this is in the story. Thomas is there and he says, I didn't see him. He wasn't there when Jesus appeared to the the disciples. He says, I won't believe until I put my hands in the nail marks in his hands and put my hand in his side. And you know Jesus turns up again and he says, hey, Thomas, Come here, I've got some show and tell for you. How merciful is that? Jesus could have rebuked him, couldn't he? And gone, gee, dude, grow up. It was good enough for them. Why can't it be good enough for you? He could have said that. He let his skepticism find the holes in his hands. The disappointed skeptic is welcome to come today. The risen Jesus has life and immortality to offer those who will be joined to him by faith. But you'll have to invite him in. You've got to raise the flag. You have to invite him in. I reckon today's a great day to do that. I'm going to put a prayer up on the screen here. It's a really simple prayer. It's a prayer we prayed on Sunday. I want to encourage you to pray it today. It says this, Thank you for sending Jesus to take my place on the cross and for raising him to life. 
I'm sorry for my sins. I know I've hurt you and others. Please forgive me. Please come into my life as king. And right now today, I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray that prayer with me. Because today's a great day to get right with God. Today is a great day to know for sure what will happen after the grave. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray these, these words. I'm going to leave a space for you to repeat it in your heart. And then we'll say amen together. Let's pray. Thank you for sending Jesus to take my place on the cross and for raising him to life. I'm sorry for my sins. I know that I've hurt you and others. Please forgive me. Please come into my life as king. Amen. It's a great day. It's a great day. And if you prayed that prayer with us today, I want you to know your eternity is sorted. There's hope, there's life, there's confidence beyond the grave.